Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Jim Abrams and David Zucker, two of the three writers and directors of the film Airplane, to discuss their new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane. Jerry Zucker, the third member of the team, could not be with us today. Jim, Jerry, and David grew up together in suburban Milwaukee and attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It was there they first cut their comedic teeth with a small troupe they founded called Kentucky Fried Theater. Airplane is the culmination of a 10-year journey that took them from Milwaukee to Madison to Los Angeles and ultimately to Paramount Studios. Joining us as a special guest host is Alex Zeldin. Alex is a writer and producer whose credits include Billy on the Street, Honest Trailers, and an untitled Steve O movie. David, Jim, Alex, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yes, it's wonderful to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you. I'd like to start talking about this film that you guys wrote and directed, Airplane. But before we get to it, I want to talk a little bit about how you got your start. And maybe the best way to ask that first question is, Tell me about Mrs. Zubatsky's Law and the Kentucky Fried Theater in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, well, Mrs. Zubatsky was our next-door neighbor, and we we just kind of glommed on to the whole concept of what she did one uh, very hot August afternoon when our, our house caught fire. And she lived next door. She was putting her laundry out to dry on her upstairs porch above their garage, and uh, and so, uh, she said, Bert, your, your house is on fire. So we all evacuated the house and we waited an agonizing 10 minutes for the fire trucks to arrive. They finally did. And they, they were struggling with the ladder, uh, because the ladder was stuck and they couldn't get the ladder up to the, uh, the roof. So Mrs. Zabatsky said, she just yelled at them, forget the ladder, just point the hose up at the roof and put the fire out. And so they did. And, you know, it's like it was out in like two minutes. Uh, and I think we, we were just struck by that whole thing that she was not an expert. She didn't know from, you know, fire prevention or fire, uh, extinguishing, but she was able to instruct them just on common sense. Isn't that pretty much how it happened, Jim? Which led to Mrs. Vatsky's law, which is never assume, uh, you can't do someone else's job better than they. And, of course, the humbling corollary, never assume someone else can't do your job better than you. And you guys said of her that she said, if you've got a better idea, put your laundry down and go do it. Right. And so when we started, we started our theater and we weren't, we were never intimidated by either the odds or the experts who and the, the pros who were in the movie industry. Uh, although, you know, we, we were fans of, uh, Woody Allen and Mel Brooks and whoever, but we thought we could do as well. So uh, I think we, we, we just saw no reason why we couldn't, you know, load up our U-Haul truck and go out to LA and, uh, and get on the jump. That was preceded by in the late sixties, uh, Jerry was finishing at Madison and David and I were both working in Milwaukee. And we ran into each other one day and we had known each other because our families were friends when we were growing up. And David said, I've got some videotape equipment. 
do you want to come over and we'll mess around with it? And to be honest, I don't think I knew what videotape equipment was. But to a family friend, the Zuckers had access to this big old reel-to-reel tape recorder. So I started going over to Dave and Jerry's parents' basement, and Jerry came in from Madison, and we started taping like spoofs, just for our own enjoyment, spoofs of commercials and um, TV shows and movies from that era. And we really had fun. And we laughed and we showed it to our friends and families and they laughed. So then we said, oh, cool. Maybe we'll show them in Madison, get a rent a room at the University of Wisconsin. So we did. And they laughed too. So then we figured, gosh, maybe we can. <laughs> and we had no theater experience or anything. And there was actually some live theater incorporated intermingled with the, with the videos. And when it worked in Madison, we thought, oh, cool, wouldn't it be nice to be on The Tonight Show? So we packed up our videos and everything and moved to L.A. And we had a choice. I think we're facing a choice. We wanted to move to a big media center. So it was either New York or L.A., and we figured it would be more comfortable to starve in 70-degree weather in January than than the alternative. But you guys know more about that. Yeah. Uh, but you did say something important in the book, which was that these years when you were doing these college-slash-improvish types of videos – and presenting them, you presented them before a live audience and that that live audience taught you about humor, what worked, what didn't work and how to hear and feel the audience reaction by the look on their faces, which held you in good stead when you finally go to LA. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because in this YouTube age, it's a, it's a different proposition. Right. Yeah. What was another confidence builder? Because you know, well, first, the videotape, we could see immediately what we were getting. It, it, up to then, we had to use Super 8 film. And uh, and then with the theater, we got instant reaction. I mean, the first reactions were from, like, family. And then when we had the theater, it was only 70 seats. And uh, But we, the word of mouth got around that it was funny, and we were just packed every night. Um, and And we would try new things, and... If stuff works, great. If it didn't, uh, then we would cut it out, of course. But it wasn't until we got to L.A. that we started actually thinking about why something worked or didn't, and we evolved. That's when we evolved our rules, just as a kind of a shorthand for us. And part of what helped us is that we're, we're all uncomfortable on stage. I mean, we weren't fesbians to begin with. And so if we were on stage and something wasn't working, we would cut it instantly. And, um, and, and I think that sort of pacing that we developed doing live theater um, wound up translating to airplane. And the other thing about the live theater for us was none of us were, uh, you know, naturally gifted comics. You know, we weren't... Uh, Jerry Lewis up there or, uh, and, and so we always played the straight role. So we would write 
so that we would be, could do this stuff on stage. And so we were the straight men. And that eventually became Leslie Nielsen and Robert Stack. And I kind of think that obviously having the theater was like going to grad school in comedy for us, though we didn't realize it. But I wonder today, because everybody's got a phone now and everybody's making videos, um, how helpful it would be other than a thumbs up or a thumbs down for people to get live reaction to their videos so they'd learn how to edit. And to add that, having respect for the audience, that if they don't laugh, you say, well, the audience isn't laughing. Let's fix this, as opposed to saying the audience isn't laughing. What do they know? I'm great. None of these commenters are smart people. But it's it, yeah, it takes a little bit of humility to to do this, and uh, and so yeah, we absolutely let the audience cut the picture. So you are doing Kentucky Fried Theater in Madison. You get in a van, you drive out to L.A., and you luck upon another location. And all of you are Midwesterners, so you're handy, and you build the uh, Kentucky Fried Theater in L.A. and start. I may. If I may know, yeah, uh, I'm not very handy, and so I was the cook. Ah, well, <laughs> well, Jim you've got it. You've got to eat. Yeah, no, he Jim hammered and nailed with the rest of us. He just took orders, and then he would break off at like about two thirty or three p.m. Go shopping, you know, and he'd, he'd make a roast, and we'd have it out on the the rooftop. Uh, while, we were, while we were constructing the theater, yeah. yeah. What I loved, there was a line in the book where it said about your philosophy about making the theater and performing in the theater and then ultimately to airplane was that you said, let's not take anything, including ourselves, too seriously. There was a lack of sort of self-seriousness, not to say there wasn't uh, deliberation, but not self-seriousness, which I think is an important characteristic in uh, humility in life. I think that... Not only is the, that the bottom line, you know, we do parody, not satire. And satire can have larger meaning, you know, like uh, um, being the bomb or something like that. But really what we aimed at was let's not take things too seriously. Let's not take these commercials too seriously. Let's take, not take these movies too seriously. And the foundation of that is, we better not take ourselves too seriously. And, and so I think some of the innovation in Airplane came from that attitude. And Like when we, we come to the end of the movie, it says the end. And, uh, you know, the boy and girl kiss and they happily ever after. And then the credits roll. And we we just saw no reason to take that seriously or stop making jokes when the credits started. So that's how we we thought of just, you know, we do jokes uh, on the credits. You know, we made fun of the credits. And in fact, when I rewatched the movie in preparation for our conversation, I forgot that the last bit of it is the fellow still sitting in the cab. And the final line, I guess, is I'll give him 20 more minutes. And the, the, the meter had, had multiple guy, thousands of dollars already, right? Yeah. And the guy who, in just FYI, who's sitting in the back of the cab for the whole movie is a guy named Howard Jarvis, who's the guy who was responsible for Proposition 13 in California in the late 70s. He was mm-hmm. a politician. 
Yeah. Interesting. And, I mean, the first the first audiences in that July of 1980, you know, the, the it's at the end, they and they leave. But then after a week, word got around that they had to stay for the credits. So everybody then stayed to the end of the credits. Hmm. So talk a little bit about, this is something I, I didn't know anything about until I read the book was, tell us about Zero Hour, how you came upon it, and then the decision to parody not plagiarize and therefore buy. <laughs> we, we used to, uh, in our live show on Pico Boulevard in LA, uh, you know, we had videotape segments where we, uh, usually do parodies, just like back in, uh, Madison, we did parodies of commercials. And uh, the, the way we would get those commercials would be to leave our reel to reel half inch video machine on overnight and just you know, record whatever the late movies were all night and we get the commercials and we cleared off in the morning. And one morning, uh, we, we saw there were some good commercials, but we started getting in engrossed in this movie that was playing and it was zero hour. Uh, and so, and we thought it was hilarious. It actually had the, the series, the line in it, uh, uh, Strudis, I think you ought to know what our chances are. We have to find somebody back there who not only can fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. And, and so we thought that was hilarious. And I think, uh, we thought, I think our initial reaction was, well, maybe we could redub this with, with our own comic lines. And then that quickly evolved to, why don't we just remake it and, uh, and cast serious actors? And that, that was the departure, I think with airplane from all other comedies that came before it, because it was a first uh, movie to have a first comedy without comedians, which I, yeah, go ahead, Jim. And the other gift of zero hour, which we really didn't appreciate till years later, it, it was written by Arthur Haley, who know how to write. And it's a very well structured three act story. All we know how to do is write jokes. But here was this Christmas tree that was handed to us, and all we had to do was hang some ornaments on it. And not only was it done seriously uh, so that we could spoof that, but the three-act story was done beautifully. There's actually, at the beginning, not only is there a wonderful character arc of this guy who has to fly down the plane to overcome his PTSD, but at the beginning of the movie, uh, Julie says to Bob, I can't live with a man I don't respect. And at the end, she says, Ted, I want you to know now I'm very proud. So there's even the boy-girl love story that was included in, in Terrar. And we had, we had no appreciation for that at the time. No, no. It, you know, it took us years to uh, realize what that meant to a successful movie and you need to put in, you have to, the hero has to have a character. So we found out. Even before years later, when you came to understand how much of a gift that was, what do you think it was about zero hour that tickled you initially compared to other disaster films of the same era? Uh, well, one thing, you know, it was 1950. So it was, it was partially film noir and we were, we loved film noir and, uh, and, and I think we, we love the seriousness of it. Um, did, did you, do, is there anything else, Jim, that we 
glommed onto it. I mean, it was perfect. It also, it was on it in a contained airplane. So that means we could do a movie, a parody of it, do a movie that was low budget because, and in addition to that, we could direct it because it was just featured, you know, three quarters of the movie was rows of seats facing forward. There's not much blocking to it. And we figured, yeah, we could direct that. But what you just said was interesting as well, which is that you learn from the Haley script from Zero Hour that in comedy, especially you say in crazy satire, the jokes work much better if you can actually care about the story in which the characters are involved. If the stakes, if the stakes are real, the jokes come more as a surprise. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I confess that in this modern year, one of the most fun things when, when the airplane opened was to sit in an audience and listen to people laugh. And we could do that. We were anonymous. So it was fun, but years go by and you can't do that very much anymore. Once in a while, there'll be a screening. So, um, I'll, every once in a while, there's on YouTube, there are people watching their videos of people watching airplane for the first time. And it's kind of fun for me anyway, to see a, how much the, the jokes hold up, but B, how much people, even in the context of all the silliness, care about the plane landing and care about that couple getting back together again. And, and one of the advantages of us landing at Paramount is that they took us through a, uh, a rewrite of the, of the script and they assigned a guy from their story department to us and he taught us some things like, you know, he said, make jokes, plot points and plot points, jokes. So, and, and in that, what he was saying was don't, you can't just take side trips and do jokes. Uh, it, it just, everything has to follow the plot. And that makes the joke, the jokes work that much better. If they're, if they're part of the plot. And in addition, what was, I think, sort of groundbreaking about this, besides you had a, serious drama where the audience was concerned about the love story and the landing of this plane. You had very funny lines. The Shirley can't be serious. Don't call me Shirley sort of stuff. But you had a lot of sort of what you call mad magazine opportunities in the background on the margins to throw in humor. So talk a little bit about that because it's not a straight dialogue, any whole sort of conversational comedy. It's got a lot of hijinks or some word like that on the we, margins. We took whatever opportunities we could. I mean, given, you know, our assignment was to be true to the story. So you have uh, Robert Stack in the car with the his driver who was assigned to pick him up talking about how he doesn't trust this guy Stryker because he flew with him during the war. And you know, we can't just sit through, you know, five minutes of boring dialogue. So in, in the, uh, on the rear projection screen, we have like cowboys and Indians chasing the car and, and all sorts of crazy, uh, swerving of the car. And that was, and that got a laugh. So it was another way we could make plot points jokes. 
Mad Magazine used to have this uh, uh, section called Scenes We'd Like to See. I don't know if they still do. But, or if Mad Magazine is still. Or if Mad Magazine, right. But, um, and what they would do on one page, they'd set up all these panels from a movie and everything would be done straight the way you're used to seeing it in the movie. And they'd tell the story and they'd wait till the last panel to make the joke. They kind of pull the carpet out from underneath the story they were telling and make their joke. And that sort of turned out to be the same format that inspired David and Jerry and me. And it's kind of a textbook, you know, that mad magazine was right. How they, they did serious setup. And so we, we always kind of took that to heart and always made our setups straight. One thing I really admired, I rewatched uh, Airplane before this, and I watched Zero Hour for the first time. And in Zero Hour, as you say, it is a perfectly structured film, um, and it held my attention all the way through. The one part where Zero Hour really started to drag, though, was when it came time to start landing the plane. It's just a lot of back-and-forth dialogue. Um, but in Airplane that's where it really starts to get funny because you had McCroskey, you had Kramer, you had Johnny, you had all of these background gags. And at that point in Zero Hour where the plot is all set up and you're just waiting for this thing to end, you have now set up all the plot. And now it's just fun, constant fun of adding as many jokes as you can because you've earned it because the plot is already working so strong by that point. And we found out I don't think we ever took it seriously until we realized what the movie became. But, uh, the, you know, the, the audience was really on the edge of their seats. They were really they had a rooting interest. It as stupid and silly as the movie was, uh, the audience was really rooting for Bob Hayes to land the plane. And, and the other big discovery for us, what we knew about, but I think for the audience and, one of the unique things about airplane was um Johnny, the the guy who works in the airport because or because he he's a guy, his name is Stephen Stucker, the actor, who we worked for years in the theater. And to be honest, I think I think for all of us, he was it wasn't until we moved to LA that we actually knew an outed gay man. That just we'd never known about. We'd never known. And Stucker was as out as you could as get. He was hysterical and a brilliant pianist. And but more than anything, he was hysterical. And he kind of carries a lot of that third act with his point of view. And actually, when we've reviewed our careers, think back, you think, gosh, he should have been in Police Squad too, because he was really a novel character for his day. You say in the book that you started with this idea and it took you the better part of five years to sort of write this thing, which I think is pretty fast for anything (laughs) these days. But can you talk a little bit about the writing process, the three of you collaborating on the writing and then ultimately on the directing of this thing? How did that work? Well, we, we started out, we didn't even know what form a script took. So, uh, we, uh, we saw John Landis, the, uh, the director on, 
on television. I, he was on the Johnny Carson show and there was a, an article about him in the, uh, the LA Times. And, uh, we called him up and we invited him to the show. And then we had, we had lunch with him and, uh, we said, we want to write a script. Uh, we want to do a movie. And he said, well, first you need a script. Yeah. And we said, we know that, but what does one look like? And so he ran out to his car and took out a, took one of his scripts. It was actually the script to American Werewolf of London, uh, in London, which he did years, years later. And he gave us, he gave us a copy of that so we, we could know the form. And then we met up in the, uh, in the dining room of the theater on the second floor of the theater. And we worked on this for, I don't know, a year probably. And, uh, it was the, uh, the first very crude version of airplane. I think we had, uh, beaver cleaver flying down the plane. It was that uh, much of a, <laughs> a forerunner. And, uh, and, and then, and we couldn't, but then, and then we're saying, okay, now we'll get, we'll get people to invest. We'll get financing. And of course we couldn't do it. And, uh, th- and that's when we, we kind of dropped it for a while and did Kentucky fried movie. And it turned out to be a good thing because then we rewrote this, the airplane script and it became much more of, of what it is, what it eventually became. But basically there's not a word in the script that wasn't written when we were all sitting around that table in the dining room writing. And we would watch not just Zero Hour, but other uh, disaster movies yeah. of that era and you know, steal jokes from from everywhere. So really, by the time we got the opportunity to direct together years later to direct Airplane, we were all, we'd spent so much time together working out every word and every nuance in the script that the, that the directing was, once the acting was in place, was pretty simple and just sort of problem solving. Although you did say, which is something I found really informative, I think it was you, Jim, in the book said that you had, quote, no desire to be right. I only had a desire to have right prevail. That, that's not simple, you know, when people feel like their ideas are the best and how come everybody else doesn't realize that. So was yeah. that in reference to our collaboration? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, on the set. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's yeah. largely that came out of a, a real deep, almost reverence for the ability of the three of us yeah. to come upon the correct answer for uh, our, for the movie. There was one hundred percent trust built be, among the three of us that even if uh, the third guy didn't agree. You know, he could, that guy could rest easier knowing that the other two guys were really convinced that that, you know, whatever it, the issue was, was the right way to go. And, and that's, and that's the other, we avoided a lot of arguments because it was just two out of three. And, and we just, we would just vote. By the and way, that, that is a lesson that I took from making airplane with David and Jerry is I still have no desire to be right as long as right prevails. And Meatloaf obviously stole that in his song, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. So, you know, he did set that musical. Yeah, Meatloaf is a big fan of the book. Yeah, exactly. What surprised me in the book, honestly, and Alexander here 
has worked with the Upright Citizens Brigade, so I've watched a lot of improv. And I thought in watching the movie, well, this is really brilliant improvisational stuff that this is what the Curb Your Enthusiasm things must be. And then I read that, as you just said, Jim, I think that nothing, almost nothing was improvised. Everything was written into the script over a period of years. It's remarkable, really. We we don't do improvisation in in our movies, and we we fight over every word. And uh, and and there, there's kind of an economy of uh, writing where you know we just we don't want to have any extra words. Uh, so and and that's how we do it. And and there's a certain rhythm to it. Uh, and and that's what I mean when when we had the first table reads, uh, Lloyd Bridges was trying to make sense out of his uh, some of his dialogue. <laughs> And he would say, well, my character wouldn't say this. And actually, we didn't care because we just wanted to get to the next joke. Uh, and so, uh, but, but, you know, Lloyd got it very quickly and, and he, and he turned out, he turned out to be fine. Among, there are a couple things in airplane that were improvised. And among them is the, uh, the woman in the line where everybody's slapping the hysterical woman. And when we shot the first take, it just, I think Leslie and it was just Leslie and the nun or something who was slapping, <laughs> excuse me, were slapping the woman. But then it occurred to us, well, wouldn't it be fun if there was a longer line of people waiting <laughs> to slap her? And so we said to the prop guy, if you got anything in the prop truck that we could use and something like that, then he came back with a whip and a bat and a gun. And all that, and we extended the the line um, of people waiting to slap the woman, including his new props. And, and in, in fact, about that that bit, you know, we I don't think we really knew, <clears throat> realized, or remembered until we wrote this book that uh, it was the actress who played the hysterical woman who suggested, well, you know, they should, he should, the nun should slap me, and Leslie should slap me, so. She she was the one who came up with slapping, and then <clears throat> I think it was Leslie. Well, we don't remember exactly, but Leslie slaps her, and then somebody says, "Doctor, you're wanted up front." And before he goes, he slaps her again. It's just it's one of my favorite things in the movie. And I don't know whether if we told him to do that or if Leslie, you know, thought that of himself. But it's just it's so cool. You uh, talk about thematically in the book what I'll call persistence. And you say that you learned early the lesson that you had to be steadfast in your vision of what you were doing. You had to have some flexibility and there was some ticklishness to that. But what would be the, you know, sort of North star of the success of this was the steadfastness of your vision of what this had to be. So can you talk a little bit about that and then perhaps how that rolls into the question of casting? Because that was a, a big issue for you guys. Yeah, I mean, what made us laugh were not so much the the comedians of the day, but uh, what made us laugh were serious movies, and that's why we laughed. That's what made us laugh is because they were so serious, you know. But who didn't have fish for dinner made us laugh, and not anybody like you know making be trying to be funny. So once we had that vision. 
we we just stuck to it. We we were just convinced, and we knew it was would work. And I say, I think in the book, I I made the analogy of you know, this was a, a tough sell to the studios. This made it so tough, and it reminded me of Columbus saying, "Well, there's if you sail west, there's there's land out there," and so we were telling the studios we what we want to do is a comedy without comedians. And I think they just thought we were nuts. And then, and then on top of that, uh, there were three of us who wanted to direct it together. So I think it, it was an easy pass for most of the studio, but there was one guy and his name uh, is Michael Eisner. And he was the president of Paramount at the time. He was the one guy who just heard the idea comedy on an airplane and said, yeah, this sounds like it could work. And I don't know if he thought at the time it was Animal House on an airplane or what, but uh, he wasn't concerned so much with the details uh, as as with just this would make a good comedy. So smart guy. You know, I think to I think that virtually all movies that work, there is a, a director in, in front who does have that steadfastness. Who has a vision and still is able to hear other creative input and kind of filter and see if that works with his or her vision. But it really helps if, if you're directing to know exactly how you want your movie to look and sound and smell and taste like. And in fact, you spend a big part of the book talking about the casting how the romantic leads turned out to be among the hardest to cast. And then your insistence, this persistence word again, your insistence that the actors who were going to be the straight guys be actual straight guys from Dragnet and the likes. And it couldn't be Jerry Lewis playing in a flight controller role. So right. talk a little bit. Instinct of someone, an outsider, or maybe uh, people at the studio were, well, get Harvey Corman or Dom DeLuise or uh, Tim Conway. I mean, get funny people. And to Paramount's credit, they never they never tried to put those people in. However, uh, they did suggest, uh, for example, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase as, uh, as uh, to play uh, Stryker. So, uh, and then I, this is another thing we found out when, while we were writing the book, you know, Jeff Katzenberg, who was one of the executives at Paramount, who was very helpful. He said, you know, this was owing to the fact that the studio had, had a lot of confidence in us and in this movie that they would want to spend the money on, uh, on some of these big stars. But, but we just thought, no, no, we can't have anyone. Who, who smacked of comedy at all. It would just, it would. We actually, someone actually suggested, I think the studio must have suggested David Letterman. And we thought probably not, but they wanted to screen test him. So we did screen test with David Letterman and he's been very open and upfront about it that he sucked and that he was incredibly uncomfortable acting and he was thrilled that he didn't get the job. But the people you chose, the Lloyd Bridges and the Leslie Nielsen's and the and Graves, these were all serious actors never having been in a comedy before. You cast them in what they know now is a comedy, but you 
tell them, which I found wonderful, you told the actors they had to act like they had no idea that they were in a comedy. Just play it straight, deliver the lines in deadpan, that which they were famous for. Right. Well, that's where directing comes in. It turns out you need a director because uh, even Leslie Nielsen, who got it, you know, as well as anybody ever could have, the first table read, he was putting a little bit of comic spin on it. And we, you know, we were very keyed into that and we didn't want any winking. So uh, what we actually, we actually sent him home with a uh, VHS tape of zero hour and said, just watch how the da- the doctor delivers his lines. And Leslie came back and he, he had it. Yeah. Someone that, funny, that I would think that would be insulting. Yeah, you would think so, you know, <laughs> because, you know, you're not supposed to give line readings to actors. <laughs> so let alone show them someone else. Doing right. So and, you know, I, I was actually directing in one of the, I think in one of the scary movies I was directing, uh, it was James <laughs> Earl Jones. And, uh, I, I, I just, you know, gave him a few, I, the inflections had to be different and, you know, I'm very specific about it. And, and so, and I didn't, I was really reluctant to give him a line reading, but he said, no, no, give me, why don't you just say it and I'll just do it exactly like you're doing it. And so I did. And so, uh, you know, and during, I'm, so I'm giving James Earl Jones exact line readings and our producer walks in and was just mortified, you know, thought that I was just insulting him. It's like, oh I think God. one of the things that, might not be understood about most actors in once they sign on, they make a leap of faith with the director. Yeah. What Martin Buber would have called a leap of faith. And, and they, um, so they're willing to take you at your word and they trust your direction. And if they're not going to trust the direction, uh, they tend not to want to do the movie in the first place. I'd like to turn to the screening of the film. And Alec, maybe you can uh, take over for me here for a little bit. Yeah, so you finish the movie and one of the first screenings that you have is with the Paramount executives. Uh, so tell us a little, little bit about that screening. Well, it was it was the first screening ever. And as we learned subsequently after Airplane, first screenings of comedies are always a disaster. And so... Uh, I think we were just too green to really know that. And so we walked in and well, part of the thing was that, um, uh, before we could take it out to colleges to really be able to cut the film, uh, the studio wanted us to show it to, we had to show it to the executives. And so there was a, a paramount, uh, staff audience recruiter who was supposed to fill the house and was incompetent. So there was nobody there, but the 30, executives and a smattering of humans. But so we had to, in a panic, we went out on, on Melrose Boulevard and Gower street to, uh, to rope people in who were online to, uh, to watch happy days in Laverne and Shirley. And, you know, we, and I got, I think we had the, the thing was half filled, but it was, it was, and I, I'm not sure that English was everyone's first language. And uh, so it was a disaster. And it's like the first half was okay. And the second half was almost silence, except for one guy. There was one guy who laughed hysterically, but you know, one guy. And so 
we ended up, uh, you know, the next day we got into the cutting room and we cut the movie to that one guy. Yeah, we tape we tape the audience reaction. Oh, so yeah. we played back the the movie to that one guy laughing, and we made a bunch of cuts based on either silence or him laughing at a joke. Yeah, I, I had actually forgotten that, but Jerry remembered it that we we cut it to that one guy. One of the nice things about writing this book was that each of us remembered about a third of the things. Yeah, there's there's a great Charlie Heather, story. Yeah, what? So I just say so. By the time the three of us put our recollections together, we really remember most of what happened. Yes, yeah, somebody remembered everything as it turned out. Yeah, there was there was this one great Charlie Bluedorn story. He was the head of he owned Gulf and Western, and uh, and so we had lunch with him at the uh, Paramount Commissary after the movie came out and was a success, and so. Um, and and he was he pitched us an idea he he had this idea Hitler meets meets Sitting Bull and Jerry remembered this thing and uh, and I guess he had pitched it to Eisner and Eisner said like that's ridiculous that's the worst idea I've ever heard and when Blue Darn pitched it to us we said that's that's a great idea Charlie I don't know why we don't know why Eisner didn't like it and so we on the way out we passed Eisner's table he was having lunch with other people and blue door and said, see, these, these boys love them, my idea. So yeah, it was just, but I had, I didn't remember that. I kind of remembered it, but fortunately Jerry was uh, awake for that. So you recut the movie after, um, thankfully this one person laughed and then talk about taking it to college campuses and then the world premiere in Milwaukee. That was a trip. That was really fun. Cause after that, I think the first screening after the disaster was we went to uh, Harvard and to the University of Wisconsin and showed the movie there. Or was Davis? No. Yeah. Yeah. UC Davis was the first screening after the disaster. And that was, we were very nervous for that. I mean, it was like the first real test. And it it was like, we knew we had it after that because it was, it was, that was a great screening. When we sat down at the B, beginning of that screening I was with the woman who would soon become my wife and I kind of grabbed her hand like this I was so nervous and I just squeezed her hand for the whole movie (laughs) (laughs) and then at the end it took like three days for her to cry (laughs) and to regain circulation in in the hand oh god how much more cutting did you do after that initial UC Davis uh, screening? Not not as much as before that, but, you know, we screened it at uh, University of Wisconsin. We screened it at Harvard and a, a few other colleges, and we kept just fine-tuning it, but but not, not nothing, nothing too much. I think it goes back to that Kentucky Fried Theater experience of the audience is who will cut this movie, and... You know, it seems like there were a lot of opportunities either to give up, like after the first Paramount screening and say, okay, well, this is it, you know, let's not keep working or to say, yeah, we got it. We're done. But I admire making it every so sharp because I think what makes Airplane the movie that ends up being number one on the, on the comedy list is that there is never a dull moment in it. Yeah. The pace certainly comes out of, uh, as you mentioned, the, the theater and, uh, and but there was never a time when there was a time when 
you know, we were distressed or I, I was mainly the one who, you know, wanted to kill myself after all these reversals. But um, there was never a time when we ever thought we would give up. And, and, uh, and also there was an executive of Paramount, uh, Jeff Katzenberg, who always was a, a great cheerleader for us. And even after the disaster screening in front of the executives, he said, uh, don't, you know, this doesn't matter. We're going to get into the cutting room tomorrow morning. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll start working on it and it's going to be great. So we, we had a lot of support, not only from the other two ZAZ guys, but, you know, from, from the studio, which was just wonderful. Right. And I, that's important to point out too, because lots of what you hear is that the relationship between movie makers and studios are adversarial. And they're morons, yeah. Yeah, but to the contrary, our experience was that they were collaborative partners and very eager to make the movie better. And many of their suggestions, like not doing it in black and white, were ideal. They were perfect. Talk to me about the world premiere in Milwaukee. Well, um, you know, Jim's mom and... My mom and dad invited, I mean, just the immediate city uh, to the Fox Bay Theater, which was our hometown theater uh, where we grew up watching uh, Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the comedies that we would see. And uh, everyone we knew was there. It was just an And then we did a Q&A afterwards. The movie played great. And it was it was one week before the. Uh, the movie was released. And you described it in the book as perhaps the greatest moment of your career? Yeah, it was, it was right downhill from there, yes. And of course, the audience was all really old people, like <laughs> 60 or... They were probably, yeah, in their 60s. Ancient, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, but, you know, our, our teachers from the, the high school were there, and... Uh, it was so it it was so amazing. Uh, it was you, uh, you exceeded their expectations, huh? Right. I but think, I, you know I the other thing. If you had asked our uh, parents when we left for California, I know my mom would said said uh, give them three months and they'll be back. <laughs> and she and, said to me, she said maybe you should just sublet your apartment because. Maybe- <laughs> and, and don't don't give up the car or I don't you know. But you know, the other thing about you know, doing something like airplane, you know, you come from Milwaukee and it's like it's an unbelievable feeling and um you know, you can only come from no out of nowhere once. And uh and that was it. So uh, you know, it 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 would never be the same after that. Although, you know, we had, you know, pretty good lives after that. We had we all had successful movies and uh, together and separately, um, but but that that airplane experience was uh, quite amazing. I mean, that's really the dream, right? And the ultimate form of validation is that when the people who are with you in your formative years come to see your work, love right. it, and tell you you're great. Yeah, that's and what I, everyone dreams of, right? Turns you down for a date, you know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so the film is a success right out the gate. People say it's the greatest comedy of all time. How does that affect you? 
What does that do to your ego? What does that do to your sense of self? I can tell you this doesn't necessarily apply to Dave and Jerry, but that was 44 years ago. And how many parties and meetings and whatever have I been invited to in the following 44 years? And I can tell when I'm meeting people for the first time, you can just see this kind of glimmer in their eyes. It's like, oh boy, oh boy, I'm going to meet one of the guys who did airplane. He's going to be hysterical. So then we get to talking and I can kind of see the glimmer go away. And they say, he's not really that. And we talk a little more. And say, you know, he's, he's not really even interesting. And people, you know, they, Bob, can I, uh, yes, sometimes, yeah. So that's been part of the legacy for me. And Jerry and I have been personally disappointed with Jim, you know, since. <laughs> you can imagine. How long did that initial high last after the movie was in theaters? And once that high started to dissipate, what what did you want to do next? How do you top how, that? How many, how many years is it now? <laughs> 43 years, Jim. That's how long. That's That's, it. Just it. It's we always kind of joke. It's a gift that keeps on giving. You know, we're, you know, we can keep. We can say. I mean, no matter as Jim says, you know, no matter how dull we are, we were the guys who did airplanes. We you can get away with stuff. You know, I don't have to be funny at parties. I I can say something even not funny, and they'll think, oh, uh, that must be funny. (laughs) Um, So quickly after Airplane becomes a success, you meet with Charlie Bluedorn, who you had mentioned earlier, the chairman of Gulf and Western, which was the conglomerate that owned Paramount. Um, talk about that dinner um, and his position on loyalty and you re-signing with Paramount. You know, we, at the time, we uh, we hadn't, you know, the, the studio had neglected to sign us for a second picture. I don't think they expected it, you know, to perform this well. So we hadn't signed. And so we were in Deauville, this was in, must have been in September and, you know, kicking off the, the international, uh, release of airplane. And, and can I just say, Dave, Charlie Budorn wasn't just the head of Paramount. He was the head of Gulf and Western, which was this huge conglomerate. And they owned not just Paramount, but Simmons mattress and a million other things. And he was the guy at the helm. Go ahead. And, and, you know, one guy who we hardly, felt comfortable talking to at the studio was the chairman, Barry Diller. And on the way in the car, on the way to the lunch, he would, he would, te- he would uh, tell us stories about Bluedorn, like how he would call all of all the owners of his companies around the world uh, at, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning and just, you know, berate them. And, and he told Barry Diller once, uh, I make more in the in the grain futures market in a half hour than you make a, in a whole year at Paramount. You know, so it was not that we were, again, we were probably too naive to be intimidated. And so we met Blue Dorn outside the restaurant with uh, Eisner and uh, Diller and Katzenberg. And he's, and uh, he immediately. And Blue, Dorn, and Blue Dorn's wife. And Blue Dorn's wife. And he says, why have you, why have you not signed the deal yet? And so I, I just kind of they were, blurted they were out. Trying, they were trying to get us to re-sign with Paramount. Yeah. For but, well, we didn't, we don't want to deal with these middlemen anymore. We want to go right to the top. So, you know, and so, <laughs> and so then we go in to have, to have the, the lunch 
And it was a very pleasant lunch. And then we kind of got back, got down to the, you know, what, what the crux of the issue was. And, uh, he was telling us about loyalty and he told a story about this one executive who he dealt with who, uh, kind of screwed him over in the deal. And he said, because this man was not loyal and, uh, and loyalty, my boys is the most important thing. And for without loyalty, without loyalty, your, your life will be as barren as the Libyan desert. And I'm, I'm doing it like one tenth of the volume that he did. And it's like, Everybody in the restaurant kind of stopped what they were doing, you know, and, and looked because who was this maniac there? And, you know, we looked at Eisner and Diller and, and they're just kind of whistling, you know, cause I, evidently they were used to this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think the lunch ended and I think, uh, you know, by the end of the day, we had signed with Paramount. Right. But even his uh, wife couldn't, once he got on that Libyan desert role, even yeah. his couldn't calm him down. At first, she was like, "Calm down, Charlie, calm." But he was, but he was off the charts. These were the exact words. I mean, we all of us just remembered it verbatim. Your life will be as barren as the Libyan desert. <laughs> Why the Libyan desert? You know? He well, was. I, I looked it up. Actually, there's some scrub bush that survives the Libyan desert. But... Oh, oh, okay. So when, when they become mattress salesmen at uh, <laughs> yeah. the company that he owns. Yeah. Um, so you resign with Paramount and they want you to do an airplane sequel, which you wrote that you initially resisted, but you did come up with a pitch for airplane two that you wanted to make. So what was your version of airplane two that you pitched to them? Well, we, we thought what, what it would, we didn't want to do another airplane movie. We didn't think there were enough jokes left. I mean, there were hardly enough jokes for the second half of airplane. So what we did was we cooked up this idea. How about Bob and Julie fly down the plane and he brings her home to his, to meet his family for a wedding. And, uh, it's the Godfather. And so the rest of it would be, you know, and we would still cast stack graves, bridges and Nielsen, you know, in whatever roles. And we could do a parody of The Godfather. But what happened was, and Eisner and Katzenberg loved the idea. And, but when they ran it by Francis Coppola, he kind of nixed it because he wanted to do, uh, Godfather three. So I think Jim says in the book, it, everybody would have been better off had they done our idea. How far into the development process did you get with, uh, your version of Airplane 2? Uh, nothing. Just, just the idea. We just pitched it. it was just, yeah, no, we didn't work on concept. it. Gotcha. Did that? We, and... we knew, we knew we didn't, we had run out of jokes for airplanes. Yeah. We, we so they, done... they, they, they do make an airplane too. So how did that come to be when they said, Hey, we do want to do another airplane? Um, how did that conversation go? Well, they, they would have been almost irresponsible to their stockholders. They had the right to do it, uh, if they didn't do a sequel, but not, neither David and Jerry nor I has ever seen that sequel. When they said that, you know, of course they have the right to do it. How did it feel kind of knowing that, did you give them the sign off, say, yeah, go ahead, do it. We don't want to be a part of it. Or was it tough to see them do it? It was tough to see them do it. We didn't give them any sign off. We, they didn't need it from us. Right. 
just went ahead and, and, and did it. And, uh, you know, I think that's just, you know, life in the, with the grownups in the big city. I think we, I don't think we, and we just wanted to make sure that our names weren't on it. So I don't think our names are on it because we've never seen it, right. but uh, they, it may say, I wonder if it says based on characters created by, I don't know. I'm not sure. You could see it for us, but not us. Did they, did they push you to be involved with it? Or once you said you weren't interested, that was that? No, they said they invited us to write it or direct it or produce it or anything. But we just wanted to keep our distance. In the interest of time, I know you guys are busy, busy, busy. I wanted to talk sort of in conclusion about something, which was that Airplane changed the world of comedy. It's the number 10 movie on the American Film Institute's list of top 100 comedies. And Alex and I each watched it separately. And we, in speaking to one another in preparation for the call, said, it's amazing 23 years plus later, it still stands up. That has to be incredibly gratifying and maybe shockingly surprising. Well, it is surprising. I mean, uh, are you saying that there are nine comedies ahead of us? Yeah, there are. I'm sorry to, if this, if this is news to you, I'm really sorry to be the yeah. one to break it to you. Very distressing. I don't know. I can't imagine what they'd be, but all of these lists, you know, the greatest. There was a, you know, look, there was a couple of Chaplin and Mark's brothers stuff in oh, there. Well, then I understand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, to me, that's incredibly gratifying. And I said at the beginning of this that occasionally I'll, watch on YouTube people watching Airplane for the first time and recording their reactions. And the, all the people who do that are, they weren't alive when we did Airplane. And so to see how those jokes have held up and still make people laugh generations later, I mean, who would have thunk? Yeah, and you see them reacting to Airplane and they invariably they turn to the person next to them and say, it's so stupid. Right. <laughs> That's what they, I guess there's, there's surprise. Um, but, uh, it, it's great. It's great to see that. If you're at a hotel flipping through channels and you see airplane on TV, do you watch it still? No, I, I, I wouldn't know. I'd like to draw this part of the conversation to a conclusion and I want to talk about something serious, but you write, in the book, that if anything can be learned from this book, and I take it that you uh, em- emphasize the word if, if anything can be learned from this book, it is stop taking stupid advice or ignore conventional wisdom. What's the worst that could happen? Right. So I think it's a, all a version of Mrs. Zabatsky's law. And you can't, I think Jerry says at one point, just, don't sit at, at anyone's feet. I mean, you can, you know, I guess it's have, have the courage of your convictions. And, uh, if you have an idea, you know, put down your laundry and, 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 and just do it. And, and you, you can't, you never know until you try. So, uh, and, and that's kind of what, what we did. I mean, we were, we were naive enough to think we really had something. And, uh, and, and there was no evidence to, uh, convince us that we didn't. So, uh, and it helps to be 
It helps to be young and it helps to be headstrong and it helps not to, you know, have a family that's relying on you for the next meal. And I have the three of us. We and, and have the three of us. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great end to the discussion of airplane. Alex, you have a follow on or. Um, just on that last point, um, you had a lot of, you know, you had to fight very hard to make this movie what it was, but you did have some good suggestions from other people. Um, what do you think that art is to not taking stupid advice, but also recognizing good advice and blessings when they're placed in front of you? Yeah, that's, I think I, it's for, for us, it's, it's always been indispensable. I don't know if Steven Spielberg sits around and picks everybody's mind. I don't know. Or if Coppola does, I don't know, but certainly for us, to be, to have our firm vision, but still be open enough to hear and analyze suggestions from other people was extraordinarily helpful and really led to the success of airplane. Hmm. So, and I think within the, the, amongst the three of you, um, always sharing credit, fighting to, with the DGA, um, to have three people as a director of the movie. It's almost the opposite of what you hear when many bands break up. You know, bands get nitty gritty of, I wrote this song. No, I wrote this song. I'm worth more money. And you did the opposite of that. And and look what came of it. We made a couple rules, collaboration rules, very, very early on. And one of them was nobody's going to take credit for anything. And it's kind of interesting because years later, people say, who thought of this joke or that joke? Or this? And for so many years, we just haven't acknowledged anything that we pretty much have forgotten who uh, was responsible. The other rule that we made for collaboration was you can't say things that are personal. In other words, you can argue a joke from now to the cows come home on the merits of the joke. But you can't end it with you asshole. You know, you can't get personal. And that really helped us survive for, you know, our collaborations. Yeah, we we never we never did eat to either take anything personally or uh put any uh value in, in personal credit. We just it was always the trio and the goal in mind was to make a successful movie. And that was, and that's all we cared about. And, and you accomplished it big time. Thank you. Thank so you. I want to just turn to one last thing and then I'll let you get on with your lives and away from us. And first, David, in your adult life, we'll call it, uh, you've been very active with tree people. So can you tell us about that and how the listening audience could contribute or be involved or what's up with that? Yeah, well, uh, I, I love trees ever since growing up in Wisconsin, trees just naturally grew up. If you just left a field alone, it would grow a forest. And when I came out to LA, it wasn't the case. I mean, you had people had to plant trees and care for trees. And for some reason, I was just always, I love trees. And so 
I discovered this organization in LA called Tree People. And it's uh, very much about personal responsibility. And they don't, we don't want to be a national organization. We want to just do what's in our own backyard. And in fact, I've on my own block, I've, you know, my daughter and I have organized this tree planting campaign. And <clears throat> you can't believe how difficult it is to get, you know, people to plant trees. And some of the old people on the block, you know, they, they, I would, I would say, you know, you got to plant these and they would, they just wouldn't do it. And finally, I just planted it myself. And then, and they asked my gardener, what are you doing? And they said, well, your neighbor just planted trees in front of your house. But the whole thing is of tree people is that, uh, it was founded by Andy Lipkis, uh, 50 years ago in 1973. And, uh, it, it, Andy, is some kind of a genius and he was the first one and the only one to see uh, a city as an ecosystem. So, and trees are the engine of this change of environmental change. Um, So, and, and over 50 years, uh, other organizations in in the country have formed uh, with tree people as the model. And And so I was going to say, and, and if someone wants to become involved, can they, is it treepeople.org? Yeah, treepeople.org. Uh, you can Google tree people and it'll, it'll show. And they love to have volunteers. They have, we have plantings every week in, uh, in the, starting in the fall, uh, because that's the time to plant trees, uh, going right through to early spring. Right. David, there, there was an article in today's LA Times about should we stop planting palm trees and start planting real trees in, in LA because we need the shade. Yeah, absolutely. Because trees do so much to, they, it, it uh, prevents skin cancer. I mean, they, the tree people has, have done a lot of greening on campuses, on elementary school campuses. And no, I agree. Palm trees really don't do anything. They just take up space, but mm. it's the shade and trees help save water. They don't take, they don't, you know, after the first couple of years, uh, trees save water. So it's just, it's, it, they're wonderful. And Jim, in your, I'll call it adult life, as opposed to your earlier uh, iterations, have started and are active in Charlie's Foundation. So can you tell us about that, please? And again, what it's doing and how people could uh, yeah. become involved in it if they were interested? So the Charlie Foundation is named after my son, who was born in 1992, Charlie. And within a year of when he was born, he started having horrible seizures. And we took him to a whole bunch of pediatric neurologists, and they all were in agreement about treatment options. They said, well, you can give him drugs or you can operate on his brain, and then he's out of luck. So we gave him all the drugs at the time, and he had a a brain operation and nothing would stop his seizures. And so, and he was averaging like a dozen seizures a day. Um, so one day when we stopped to see his pediatric neurologist at UCLA, it was kind of as a way for me to figure out how he and the rest of his family were going to make it through life with this seizures and what they called progressive retardation. I stopped at the UCLA Medical Library and found hiding in 
plain sight something called the ketogenic diet, which had been around then for about 70 years. It's a high fat, uh, uh, no sugar, low carbohydrate diet that at that point had been around for 70 years, buried in the medical literature that stopped the seizures in kids as bad as, as sick as Charlie for the last 70 years. So we basically looked up uh, the most recent doctor who's at Johns Hopkins, who still did the ketogenic diet because he had a wonderful dietitian he was working with. And we flew to Johns Hopkins and put Charlie on the ketogenic diet. And within two days of starting the diet, his seizures stopped. And he was off all four of his then anti-epileptic medications um, within a month. And Charlie's 31 now. He's never had another seizure, never taken another anti-epileptic drug, eats whatever he wants. And when Nancy and I figured out that there's a world epilepsy population of over 50 million people, most of those people start having seizures at children, and just a minuscule percent ever find out about diet therapy for epilepsy, we started the Charlie Foundation in an effort to get the word out there. And you can kind of see the progress we've made. And we, too, have a, a website called charliefoundation.org. And finally, David, Jerry is not here because of work that he's doing in his adult life. That's Jerry's Science and Entertainment Exchange. Uh, are you familiar enough with it to give us a background on it and, again, how people can learn of it and be involved with it? I, I'm not sure that I I can really talk about it that I'm, I'm not that familiar with it uh do you know any more about it jim it, it's he's very interested in science and he's had he's had a lot of uh gatherings at his house to to promote that and and to uh promote stem cell research right he's been a strong advocate of stem cell research um and he of i don't know 10 15 years ago there was a bill that passed in california that Jerry was one of the champions of that raised $3 billion for uh, stem cells research. Well, you started out great, and you're in this latter stages of life doing even more important stuff. I mean, making people laugh is really important, and making people feel healthy is and, yeah. and, and having a good environment is great. So we're very grateful for you to have taken the time to speak with us, Alex. Thank you for joining us too. Any last observations or otherwise we'll let these guys get on with their lives. Let's let them get on with their lives. Again, thank you so much. The book is Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane. And you go to uh, theairplanebook.com makes it really easy to order it. Great. Thanks again. Sure. Thank Thank you, guys. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.